Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It is time for another update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. Updates are based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. So let's get started. The first thing I want to talk about today is COVID-19 and masks. If you follow the news, you know that as a result of rising numbers of COVID-19 cases and the Delta variant, the CDC revised their guidance for fully vaccinated individuals on July 27th. The new guidance states that, one, fully vaccinated individuals are recommended to wear masks when indoors in areas of substantial or high transmission. Two, fully vaccinated individuals who have a known exposure to someone with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 should be tested three to five days after exposure and wear a mask in public indoor settings for 14 days or until they receive a negative test result, and three, universal indoor masking for all teachers, staff, students, and visitors to schools, regardless of vaccination status, is recommended. Since OSHA adopted the CDC's prior recommendations regarding fully vaccinated individuals not being required to wear masks, it is expected that OSHA will also adopt the CDC's new recommendations. For the purposes of the guidance, an area of substantial or high transmission is based on the CDC's COVID-19 data tracker, which is updated daily. If you take a look at the tracker, and I have it linked in the show notes, you'll see that the area covered by substantial or high transmission is very large, over 50% of the country. So what does this mean for your business? Well, first, it means you should check and see if you fall within a substantial or high transmission area, and if you do, you need to consider whether and to what extent you might need to revise your current policy on masks. CDC guidance is not a law or regulation and is not binding on employers, but several jurisdictions have already issued new mask orders that do cover the workplace. Also, many states, including Ohio, have curtailed their governor's ability to impose broad health orders, but if OSHA adopts the CDC's position, employers need to at least consider the risk of OSHA fines if they do not follow the guidance. Other employers who have not fully returned employees to the workplace at this point may elect to wait a bit longer and see what develops. In other COVID news, there have been some vaccine challenge lawsuits filed that are based on an argument that the FDA's emergency use authorization status of vaccines in the U.S. requires that potential vaccine recipients be informed that they have the right to accept or refuse the vaccine. Now, this is based on language in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And the argument in these lawsuits goes that because Uh, This is not happening where companies have a mandatory vaccine policy, that is, the recipient does not have the right to refuse the vaccine, the policies are invalid. Now, to be clear, none of these handful of challenges that have been filed have succeeded in any court that I'm aware of. Regardless, the DOJ issued an opinion earlier this month stating that the emergency use authorization provision concerns only the provision of information to potential vaccine recipients and does not prohibit public or private entities from imposing vaccination requirements even for a vaccine that is subject to an emergency use authorization. In other words, certain information must be conveyed to the recipient of the vaccination, but that does not limit an entity from requiring vaccinations. 
Now, I'm not sure how compelling that argument is, but it's not too significant, since all of these challenges were not succeeding anyway. It may be useful, though, for employers who need to respond to employee concerns along these lines. Moving on, there's a new race case from a federal court in Maryland, Miller v. Bright Key, Inc. In that case, a 52-year-old black man was employed as a corporate communications director, and he offered to draft a company statement on George Floyd's death. The CEO chose three white employees to draft the statement instead. One of the employees, a VP of operations, had made offensive, extremist, racist, homophobic, and transphobic comments in roughly 100 videos posted on YouTube. After finding the videos, the plaintiff left a message for the CEO calling for the VP's discharge. When he received no response, he sent a company-wide email the next day regarding the VP and his activities. This led to company-wide walkouts, and the VP of operations was actually terminated the next day. However, the communications director was also terminated for the way he handled the situation, including sending out a company-wide email. The lawsuit followed, and at this point it's proceeding, and full disclosure, there were some other pretty shocking allegations as well, such as a gone-with-the-wind party that the CEO allegedly hosted that included blackface costumes. Now, I'm not going to address that, though, because I shouldn't have to point out what a bad idea that is. Instead, I want to focus on one point, which is the response to the communication director's initial complaint to the CEO. Apparently, he sent the company-wide email because he did not receive a prompt response to his initial complaint. Now, in fairness, it seems like he waited less than a day before going with the company-wide email, but I get asked a lot of questions about explosive situations like this one, and one thing I've always noticed is that companies that react the most quickly usually have the best results. If you are in a legal, HR, or high-level management position, it is critical that you stay on top of your email and respond very quickly to complaints, especially potentially devastating ones like the one in this case. Now, I'm not suggesting that you need to resolve a complaint in some impossibly fast time frame. The key is acknowledging receipt of the complaint and letting the complaining party know that the wheels are turning. If you're not able to keep up with your email, consider having someone else assist you if that's possible, if only by checking for urgent emails emails that require an immediate response. Those kinds of steps might have avoided this case and the PR nightmare that went with it. Next, let's consider a case out of the Sixth Circuit, Threat versus City of Cleveland. In this one, a supervisor of emergency medical services employees altered the schedule of several EMS captains who later brought claims for race discrimination. After the normal bidding process for shift assignments, there were shifts that were staffed only by black captains. In an effort to, quote, promote diversity, end quote, a supervisor moved black captains to other shifts and replaced them with white employees. Not surprisingly, the Sixth Circuit didn't struggle with this one. The decision had clearly been made based on race, and the only real question was whether changing shift assignments amounted to adverse action. The court concluded that they did, although I'm not so sure it's as clear as they indicated. Regardless, I think the takeaway here for employers is that promoting diversity in the workplace involves a comprehensive plan, typically developed by a qualified professional. It's not a matter of ad hoc tinkering, and managers who do that risk these kinds of claims. Next is a disability claim out of Indiana. In Collins v. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees Council 962, an employee who had taken leave to seek treatment for a bipolar disorder claimed that he was terminated on his return after he refused a transfer. 
The big dispute in the case was whether the employee resigned or was terminated, and ultimately, the court decided that a jury would make the decision. A critical piece of evidence in the case were comments that the employee's supervisor had made about another employee who had taken leave for mental health issues. The supervisor had commented that the other employee was weak, not really suffering from a mental health issue, and was taking time off because she can't handle the job and was trying to play it up. The court concluded that these comments could be evidence of discriminatory views about mental illness. The moral of the story is pretty simple. Supervisors should be trained not to make comments about employees' medical conditions or leave status in the workplace. Frankly, in litigating these types of cases, I see this all the time, typically in cases where employees take leave or in the context of workers' compensation claims. Dealing with such issues can be frustrating for managers, but making comments such as the ones in this case will simply lead to more problems. Obviously, managers may have opinions about employees' conditions and requests, but it's better in most cases to refrain from discussing them with subordinates or in any context where there's not a business reason for the discussion. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.